For those visiting, we are exploring a number of virtues at the moment that are presented by the Apostle Peter. It's uh, the book of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. And there's a list of virtues that are laid out in that chapter that, that uh, Peter seems to believe are the ones that lead us to a, a healthy place of discipleship, particularly in that setting where they were dealing with uh, uh, persecution on one end and interior sort of issues of, of seductiveness and stuff like that, trying to pull people away from the faith. In that list, many commentators suggest that the order isn't hard and fast. Although it's been fun, kind of unfolding them the way they have been in the order they're presented. But they do agree that the first and the last virtue seem to be in the right place. Faith is the first one. And then the last one is love. Today is my only shot to speak about this virtue of love. As you can imagine, when we're talking amongst all the preachers, this wasn't a hard sell. For me to do this today, I'm actually going to um, go into uh, something really that I consider really special from the Gospel of John. If you're someone who likes your actual printed Bibles, John chapter 13 is where we're going today, and we'll survey a few chapters from there. But uh, just, uh, yeah, John 13, it will be on screen shortly. As John is writing this, we understand that he was the bishop of Ephesus at this time, and it's, it's about two decades on from Paul and, um, and Timothy and even Peter's letters and that sort of thing. Twenty years on from the time that Paul and these guys were ministering to that region. They seem to have, Ephesus seems to have taken hold of some of Paul's writing and dealt with some of the falsehood in their midst as instructed. But in John's day, newer and stronger doctrinal struggles are coming. There's a challenge to the church internally. And John's gospel is written mainly to correct that doctrinal threat. But there's another problem in the church which is being ignored. If you, um, and, and their external expression is being harmed as a result. Revelation 2 would go on to sum up their position really strongly. You guarded yourselves against doctrinal bullies and heresies. Well done. But in your intolerance and in your suspicion, you've gotten to the place where you're dissecting people's doctrines, their hearts and their motives to the point that you're actually losing the capacity for love. John, in his gospel and in his letters, addresses it towards each other. If you claim to be a believer but have hatred towards a brother, you're a liar. The truth's not in you. That's John's words. Jesus goes on in Revelation 2 to address the love that they have towards him also. So the passage I'm reading from today is an account of Jesus' last hours before his death. It's fitting that we've got a communion table that's still open in front of us as we do this because this is a picture of the setting that some of this stuff is being taught. 
In my last church, we used to have someone insist that after communion, we cover it with tablecloth again. I don't know why, but I'm actually okay with this being open right now because we have an open table where things are being done and we can actually have a bit of context as we read John's gospel here. As John is writing this, he has a specific audience in mind who need to remember that Jesus is God. And anyone who teaches otherwise is a false teacher. But this same audience needs to remember that if Jesus is God and God is love, that being his hands and being his feet has a lot to do with, being, with a genuine Christ-like expression of love. Not just good doctrine. As good as good doctrine is, as important as it is, love is important Let's pick up John's recollection of events on the night that he was betrayed. John chapter 13. Now, this will be on screen as we go. Um, if you're visiting, this reflects where our community is at on a number of fronts. Um, and uh, so the screen has three languages on there. But we're going um, uh, verse by verse to keep us on track here. Let's read this together. Can I have the PowerPoint up, please? It said no. Can you just open it up in PowerPoint? Don't just close Easy Worship and, um, and use the PowerPoint program instead, please. I have to read anyway, and we'll get back to that. Verse 31 to 35. When he was gone, that is, Jesus said, now is the son of the, you know, so when he was gone, that's a reference to Judas leaving the building. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. But a new command I give you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. My main point to make this morning is simply this. According to Jesus, love is our certificate of authenticity. The New Living Translation of verse 35, and I'll just flick through these just so we get the thank you very much. That is awesome. Appreciate that. Verse 35 of the New Living says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You want proof? Demonstrate it in love. It's not our doctrine necessarily that people will look to first. Seasoned believers, of course, do and, and will. But the world around us, not so much. They don't know what they're looking for in that regard. It's not necessarily the slickness of a church event on Sunday, although being organized and structured is certainly helpful. It's the love we have for each other that will have the most impact. Brotherly kindness is basically a tolerance of each other, an acceptance of God's, an understanding of the sacredness and the fellowship that God is doing in our midst. But love is a whole new level again. 
And over the course of this Passover discussion that this conversation is taking place, Jesus is able to lay out a number of ways this takes place. Before I lay out those ways, it's important to note some characteristics of love just from what Jesus has said here. The first thing we note is that this is a command. Of all the gospel accounts and on everything we know about Jesus spending at least 36 years on the planet, spending at least two years apprenticing some disciples, out of all the things that he did, said, taught, led, he's known for one command. He upheld everything else. He recognized or even redefined the Big Ten. He continued to point people to following those things. But the person of Jesus who John wanted us to know was God in the flesh made one command for his disciples to follow with the knowledge that everything else hangs off of it. He says this, God the Father loves me. Jesus the Son has loved you the way the Father, his Father loves him. Now love each other the same way Jesus the Son, who was loved the same way by the Father, loved the disciples. In the way that Jesus loved us, love each other. No small challenge, is it? The second thing to notice is that the love Jesus is commanding here is a pretty extensive expression. And I use the word expression deliberately because love described here is actually a verb. It's not something that flutters in our heart. It's something we do. A study of this word shows some characteristic of of this expression. If you know your buzzwords in Christian ancient Greek, you'll know it's the word agape here that's being used here, and it's, it's it's an expression of love that is deliberate choice. It's not driven by feelings or impulse. It actually goes against the grain of our inclination at times. We actually have to choose to love this way. And we can't leave it to, I just don't feel it. That's actually not an excuse. This expression of love is not reserved for those with which we have formed some sort of affinity. It's not reserved for the people we think have earned it. If we look at how it is the love that Jesus has for us, tell us we earned it. Tell ourselves, you know, try to tell, try convincing ourselves that we earned that love. No, it was extended to us before it was earned. This expression of agape is used to speak of the nature of God. It describes the love expression of Christ. It highlights a deep, constant, and unconditional love of a perfect being towards unworthy ones. That's the sort of expression that is being commanded to us. Third thing to note here is that our love expression should be done in such a way that it looks the way Jesus would express it. You know, years ago we had those WWJD wristbands. This is the ultimate litmus test. 
How would Jesus love? Go and do likewise. Fortunately, it's not just about leaving a concept in our lap and walking away. The rest of the discussion that John records actually shows us the number of ways that Jesus goes and and puts that love into practice and actually gives some very lingering, lasting, practical um, uh, examples of how this goes down. I'm actually going to go over a few of those now, and uh, we're going to backtrack to verse 1 of chapter 13 as we do this. Let's look at this one. So, it starts this way. Hopefully my PowerPoint is going to keep up. Evidently not. All right. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, just pause for a moment. This is a tone-setting statement that's being made here. All right, all you're about to read, all that we're about to study here has an overarching theme of the love that Jesus is expressing and commanding in us. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus begins to give a vivid, vivid external model of love here as a final lesson for his disciples. And, and it's only at this point that this command has been made. And now Jesus is giving us many ways how this happens. And the first expression of agape love that Jesus shows us here is service. Love is service. Shocking, elaborate, confronting service. We know it's this way because Peter is having a real hard time receiving it. 
This is a deliberate act. In any other setting was done by a, a servant, not a host. Let's get through those. There we are. Jesus went to that place and served with a reminder that because he went there as part of his love expression, so should they. I don't know if I've had a chance to show you some of these photos, but this is actually one of, this is actually my time in India. These men are about to graduate from a very basic Bible college course over there and are going to get released to basically reach a thousand people in their first few years of ministry. These guys haven't even been believers two years themselves yet. And before they graduate, they have their feet washed as part of the process. This is the photo taken after I actually, me and the team that went over there actually had a chance to participate in that first. Then they kind of went, that was almost like, it was amazing. They were clamoring. They were like, it was like, it was almost like they kind of let us have the first few. Yeah, oh yeah, let you do a couple. Now get out of the way because we want to do it now. It was like that. There was actually an attitude of service and, and people falling over themselves to be able to play a part in that process. But there is something really sacred and special. When you, and then when you learn that these men are going to a very dicey future across northern India, you kind of go, wow. It was a sacred moment to be able to serve to that point and to sit in a, and to take the posture that we understand our Lord took as part of a commissioning for people to step into their, their role as ministers. It was a, it was a truly amazing thing and, and, I, and it gave me a whole new appreciation for the process. Love is service. Shocking, elaborate service. And more. Let's go into chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Married couples, can you remember the day the proposal took place? I remember mine. Never go to a mountaintop to propose if you're waiting for a sunset. <laughs> Just the tip of the trip. We went up to the, we were, our proposal took place at the Matthew Flinders Lookout on the um, Arthur's Seat Mountain. We went to the top of Arthur's Seat, had a picnic, Monday night, Daylight savings time. 
And then eventually we go down to Matthew Flinders. We're just watching the bay and I'm waiting for the sun to set over the uh, west. And, and daylight savings taking forever. And I'm shuffling my feet. I'm kind of like buying time. Jen's going, what on earth is going on? And so before the sunset happened, all right, get down on a knee, will you marry me, right? We all have different stories. Some of them are really romantic. Some might have been, you know, less formal, whatever it is. I say all that because this was a common phrase that Jesus is talking about here that was actually a discussion that a groom would have with his fiancée. We often mark those periods by cutesy things, courtship, selfies, you know, first dates, you know, Instagram accounts going, hey, true love, hashtag, all those things. And then there'll be a proposal, and then hopefully she says yes. And in those days, the culture of the day meant that the actual groom would actually say this, awesome, I'm going to go build us a house. She says, I do. I'll marry you. He goes, fine, I'll build us a house. When it's done, that depends on how good I am with the tools. I can't tell you how long that's going to be. When it's done, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you and we're going to go and start our life together. You go, you get ready, and you just wait for me and I'll come and get you. Soon. How long? soon as it's done. It's open-ended. It's a little bit... This building project, more often than not, was actually an extension of his own home where he grew up, his father's house. The bride would be in a complete state of trust that this extension would be up to code and suitable for her and her family. And she would be completely trusting that the groom would indeed turn up and make good on his end of the engagement. Doesn't that give a whole new heap of light to the parable of the virgins and the, and the, and the other stories of being ready and being waiting as a bride? Jesus promising to make room in his father's house and returning to take them is a promise not unlike a betrothal promise. And if you're not used to that old world, old word, betrothal, think of it as a really deeply invested engagement. That is costing the groom so much to make it happen. The church is referred to in New Testament writing as a bride for this very reason. It is a deep commitment that Jesus has to us with the awareness of great shame if the groom didn't deliver. That's the love that Jesus has for us. And he says, in the way I've loved you, love each other. Our love expression is therefore to be a deeply committed one to each other. We are all the betrothed of Christ. And by extension, we need to understand that we should have a sense of commitment, deep, engaged commitment with each other. Paul taps into the word submission. 
to each other is another way of describing how this can be expressed. So we have servanthood. We have betrothal. The conversation continues in chapter 15. They've left the Passover location and now they're on the path to Gethsemane. And here's how it goes on. The disciples, as Simon rightly pointed out, still had no clue what's about to happen. Jesus is deeply aware and with his knowledge going on here, this is what he's saying. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that we'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burnt. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And in case we're not getting it, this is my command. Love each other. This is loaded. There's only a time for a few things here. Jesus being the true vine with God being the gardener is a statement of exclusivity here, right? This is Jesus going, I'm where the life source is at now. And Jesus says to abide in him and be fruitful. Discipleship has to lead to fruitfulness. There is a productivity that comes out of being a believer. Abiding in Christ means remaining in his love and in his words. In other words, a Christian is someone who has truly tasted the love of God as shown by Christ. And a Christian is obedient to God via the words of Christ. In the teaching of Jesus, we see that remaining in his love and remaining in his commands are interwoven. And that Jesus regards us as friends when we live under those things. This is a significant elevation of status right here. He doesn't call us a loyal or obedient servant, but a friend. Because of Christ, we, actually, we, we, we know not just what he says, 
but we know the very heart of Christ also. We haven't seen what servants see. Instruction and rules are nothing more. We see what friends get to see. We get to see the inner workings of things. And those inner workings are on full display as they walk towards Gethsemane at this time. This lesson about the true vine leads right into this final impassioned statement of his only command. Love each other the way he loves us. Jesus' final agape expression is about to be shown to the disciples. They're going to see it in great detail. But it is anticipated in this passage. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The world was not friends with Jesus yet. They had no idea of his love, no idea of his command. The scriptures tell us he laid his life down for them anyway, while we were still sinners, while we were at enmity with God, Christ laid his life down. Agape love is sacrificial. It's unconditional. It does not wait for the other party to earn or reciprocate. It instead puts itself out there in a sacrificial way in faith and hope that it will be responded to in that way. So here's my conclusion for this morning. Love towards each other is our certificate of authenticity. And authentic love needs to look like the sort of thing that Jesus himself would express. And our very conduct needs to reflect Christ. This love is prescribed by Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is an agape expression. And it's the only command that Jesus gave his disciples. Love has an expression in service towards each other. And I dare say service towards those who aren't even ready to receive it yet. Service in the world around us. It has an expression in our commitment towards each other. Understanding we are the fellow betrothed. And finally, agape love has a sacrificial element. It's got to cost us something. Jesus did this to the point of death for people who would one day be friends, even though they were not at this time. Romans 12 calls us to live our lives as living sacrifices. Surely love has to be part of that expression. As we wind up, I consider my almost finished project here. The following voices, you guys have got those faces. I've got some really ugly tin metal up there that I'm not happy with. One Peter four eight says that love covers a multitude of wrongs. Proverbs also says that twice as well. We have used love as part of this construction to talk about the story how basically love covers up all the rough edges. 
There's points where you build stuff. I was talking to a guy at Bunnings this morning. He's a welder. He goes, you know what's the difference between a good and a bad weld? A good paint job. <laughs> the ability to cover the rough edges. You and I have rough edges, don't we? I got them. I'm a rough diamond, and so we are we all. When it comes to things of faith. We might be polished in many other areas of life, but when it comes to faith, there's some rough edges, right? Okay, you know that because we give each other splinters all the time, don't we? You know, we're rubbing our, you know, rubbing our shoulders and, you know, we kind of, you know, we get a bit prickly at times or different things happen, but love covers those wrongs. Love covers the rough edges in us. Why? Because the blood of Jesus washes away sin. The sacrifice of Christ deals with our wrongs. And our love for each other can deal with the ones towards each other also. Agape love, friends, is that an expression that we have? Is it like Jesus? Is there sacrifice to it? Is there a commitment to it? Is there elaborate, shocking service? My challenge today is to walk in those things. The pinnacle of our discipleship journey, friends, is love. Let's display it the way Jesus wants us to display that. To each other first, to the world around us, so that they see us and go, that is undeniably Jesus. Let's pray.